And uh, in some ways, life definitely was simpler on the days you just got up and whoever was sitting in front of you, they were the ones that got to listen. And if they weren't there, you know, you don't want to be mean and say, well, tough luck for you. But uh, there wasn't a lot you could do about it. Just those weren't even options anybody ever thought about. And uh, although I have to say this, this is an, this is an interesting uh, thought. There, I, I could sit here and go on because there are several things from different things people talked about, and prayer requests and things from Jim's class that, you know, I could go on and ramble on for the whole hour. But uh, you go back into the last early part of the last century in the late 1800s, and this probably goes back further than that, but those are the ones I'm familiar with. When they had people that got up and spoke, they almost always had stenographers that actually would record what was spoken and they would transcribe all that material down and if it was considered worthy of being transmitted then they would actually print that up and print that out and I've got several books in there of messages from those things and they weren't messages that were written because a number of those speakers that are recorded on it will tell you they never wrote their messages out they wrote out a few scriptures, a handful of scriptures that they were going to te teach on. And they just looked at those scriptures and taught through those things. But they didn't have like, uh, they probably didn't even have an outline like I use, much less write it out. I know, I've known men that they write a message and it's seven pages fully written out, a full transcript of what they're going to say. And they practice it and rehearse it. And then they get up front and they do their best to read through it, but make it look like they're not reading it. In fact, I knew a lady from one church that she's, this is a church back in Iowa, that she says when the page, when the pastor turned the seventh page, you knew you had five minutes left. Because <laughs> you knew that he was, you could time where he was, because you knew he's, every message was seven pages long. And you knew when he turned the last one, he just had the backside of that page to finish, and then he was finished like that. And um, so I, just that to say is that people have been, in one form or another, taking the things, that, the spoken word, and trying in other ways to make it available to people in different settings uh, for a long time. So this is not new in that regard. But uh, today we're going to finish, we're going to complete, still says part nine, it's not part nine, we're past that. I always forget to change the opening slide on this. But we're going to complete our study on how to, how to read or apply your Bible. We've been doing this since about the middle or the end of, of January. And... Uh, this was not an exhaustive study. We could, I could have loaded you down. If I were teaching this as a full regular class, we probably would have gone through lots of examples of all these different things. But we're just trying to give you a, a, a picture, a snapshot of some of this stuff as we've come through it. Today we're going to come down to the, the, the last word. and when we, We've gotten to this section about applying the Word of God, and especially looking at the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament... Most of it was not really written for you and I. In fact, just about finished reading a book because I'm a very pokey reader. I, t t I, I read for a while and then I may put it down and not read for three or four days. But a book by Andy Stanley. And you may not know who Andy Stanley was. His dad, Charles Stanley's a Southern Baptist. They've been on there. But Andy Stanley, this whole book, this whole book is about Christians today divorcing our presentation of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. And stop defending the Old Testament and stop trying to build a case from the Old Testament when you're talking to people about Jesus Christ. And he makes the case by, uh, by coming and demonstrating how when Paul and these people did it, they may have given a short rehearsal of some Old Testament information, but they basically had to get down to who Jesus Christ was. And Jesus Christ was the emphasis of their message. They were not going back and applying the Old Testament to their readers. 
Now, I, most of us here would go, okay, we can we can handle that because it's exactly, our, I mean, are we living under the law? No. In fact, next week we're going to move into a study on You Have Heard It Said, where we're going to look at the misapplication of certain texts and the New Testament balance of the, the proper way to do it. And what we're going to do is essentially look at some contrasts. We did this a lot a year, 24 years ago, because I remember I, we, I was teaching through that 24 years ago. I remember sitting in the hospital with Gary, and uh, one day he, he was napping a little bit in the hospital. I, Leslie had to run home and take stuff, and I stayed over there for a, for a day or two with him. And, and I remember working on some of this stuff, and he was asking me to kind of talk to him about some of the stuff I was studying. And it was these contrasts between the old and the new. And looking at some of these, just looking at legitimately what they said. This is where we're going. But this is what Andy Stanley is recognizing. And I don't agree with everything he goes with, but he really, I think he does kind of get the punch of the fact that you and I really live in the New Testament. And by New Testament, and this is the thing I've placed, I think he doesn't even get it, we don't even live in the Gospels. Because the Gospels are largely Old Testament. The New Covenant doesn't start until Christ rises from the dead. And a lot of what Jesus Christ said during his earthly ministry was about Israel and their kingdom. And it wasn't about us. And if you go with some of the things that he says, you end up with contradictions to what is stated later on. We've been over that. We'll look at some of those in that study. But when most people think of the Old and the New Testament, as we're saying, we're, we look at these things and people think, well, it's all the same. And they don't actually stop to look at the fact, but this says this and this says this. How does this work? Because you can't have both ways, can you? You can't have to keep a Sabbath and then you'll not be judged for a Sabbath. That doesn't work. You can't determine in your heart what you're going to give and yet be required to give a tithe, can you? How can both those be true? Those are some examples of things in contrast between old and new. And a lot of times when we're talking about the use of the Old Testament, this is where normally we would start. And I almost was going to scrap this message, and I thought, you know, we really need to balance this out. I've had this done for a while. We need to, we need to go through some of this material, and I shortened it up a little bit, believe it or not, uh, on this idea of fulfilled. What is meant when Scripture is fulfilled? And I'm going to tell you right now, if you just do an honest study of the places where the word fulfilled is used, you're going to be surprised that it's not always what you immediately think it is. Because there is some breadth to the idea of the word fulfilled. There is not one set meaning on this. In fact, just as, a, as an aside, this word that's translated fulfilled in a number of these passages is the same word used of the Spirit filling us. And it's related to the work of Christ filling the body all things in all ways at the end of Ephesians chapter 1 and at the end of Ephesians chapter 3. And so when we have this, it has the idea of something that is partial or empty that is being filled to its full so that it is now not just full, but it is complete. In fact, in one of your old translations in Colossians 2.10, it says you are, or Colossians 2.9, I believe, it's, maybe it's 2.10, it says you are complete in him. And that word complete literally is you are made fullness in him. You're made fullness in him. You're complete. It's filled up. It's what it's supposed to be in Christ. Down here may not yet be, but in Christ it is. So when we're looking at this verb, it's a translation. It is a translation of the verb plerao. 
fill or filled full is not always appropriate way to translate it. You have to always translate every word by context in this way. But as we said, it means to fill a thing full so that it that is not full in some way. So when fulfill is applied to scripture, it means that God intended another event to fill up a statement. You and I may not even know that it was expected. We're going to look at at least one of those statements today in which if you just read that, you wouldn't look at that and go, oh, well, something's got to finish that up because it's not done. You'd read it and say, oh, okay, it's just a statement of fact. But God actually had plans that he was actually going to complete that statement with another event finishing what happened in there. So, we're going to start over here with this statement. I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 9 and look at an example here of fulfillment. And this is just a very straightforward, easy one. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 in verse... Let's go, just go to verse 1. It says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt... But later on, he shall make it glorious by way of, uh, by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light shall shine on them. It's that first part that the people who walk in darkness will see great light. Take your Bibles and turn now over to the book of Matthew in chapter 4. He's looking at a future time in this context of Isaiah when there's going to be an end of darkness in those lands in which the, the gloom and the situations and the judgment and all the things that they were struggling with is going to be ended. And it says here in Matthew chapter 4, put down in verse 15. Well, let's go back up to verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been taken into custody, he began, he withdrew into Galilee Galilee's up there close to his home country. We're going to look at this in just a second. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is on the Sea of Galilee, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill that which was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, and again, if you read that statement over there, you'd say, oh, there's some, in some way, at some time in the future, there's going to be a time in which Zebulun and Naphtali are going to be exposed to some light. And obviously light and gloom in the context is not talking about literally that it's dark and heavy clouds and there's going to be a bright light, but it's talking about something on a metaphorical level. And of course, we're going to see what that light is in just a second. The land of Zebulun, now verse 15, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and to those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Now let me ask you, first of all, a question, just to make sure we're all on the same page. What is Zebulun and Naphtali? They're what? They're tribes. Tribes named after... They're named after two of Jacob's sons. So Jacob had seven, had seven sons. Jacob had 12 sons. Had 12 sons. And when that land was apportioned to these people, and the book of Joshua has that, to me, uh, and I, I think I made this comment last week, but I always think when you read the book of Joshua, 
We get we don't like details. When we read the Bible, we like to just read the exciting stories. We want David fling that that stone and take Goliath down. We like that fast. It's moving. Oh, exciting! But then you get to, you're reading in Joshua, and it's like, and the land for this tribe is going to start at this map landmark, and it's going to go over here, and it's going to turn at this brook, and it's going to go north, and it's going to stop up at this city, and then it's going. And we read that, and pretty soon we're like snore. <laughs> Why is that there? But you know what? Those details are some of the things that, that remind me this is an historical book. It's an historical book because it actually is recording details that really meant something to those people at that time. And when they did that, all this land that they were taking was apportioned to them by God's plan. And two of those, these people, two of these brothers, Zebulun and Naphtali, they had these two pieces of land. So, here we go. Here's the land. And again, my, I still don't know what happened. My, my pointer's gone. Anyway, so Zebulun and Naphtali. For those of you that cannot see this, this is the land when it was apportioned out. And here we go, Zebulun and Naphtali, way up there. Jerusalem, for those of you that can't read this fine print, Jerusalem's right down here. Here's the Dead Sea and Jerusalem's here. So we're way up there, and that piece of body of water is the Sea of Galilee. Now let's zoom in. There we go. Naphtali and Zebulun. He, got the, he had the big view. Now this is a small. Here is this. This is from the Old Testament point of view. Okay. Now let's zoom in just a little bit more. Point this out. Or not zoom in, but point this out. This is where ah, Nazareth is located. So Jesus grew up in this land. And he moves from over here at Nazareth, moves over to the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. And Capernaum is within Naphtali. So Zebulun and Naphtali, these two places are where Jesus is going to spend the bulk of his ministry. Talking to these Jews that are in the northern part of this territory. Now they're not called that in Jesus' day. Because that had been part of Samaria. And all of that had been, gone away, had been taken away and it had all been gone away. They still were referring to this as Samaria. But they're not referring to it by the tribes. But that prophecy that Isaiah made is fulfilled by Jesus when he returns from Egypt as a child, as a little child, comes back with his parents, settles up there in Nazareth, and now when he begins his ministry, he eventually ends up over here. And that promise is fulfilled. Now, one last thing I want you to see with regard to this. Turn to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, without looking at the heading, what's the big event in John 9? What's the big story? It's the healing of the blind man. And when that blind man is going to be healed, it says in verse 4, We must work the works of him who sent me. That's talking about the Father. As long as it is day, night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. It's really, it's really important because Christmas comes along and sometimes people send out Christmas cards and they say, Jesus is still the light of the world. But this verse says right here, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. He's not the light of the world today. You know why? Because people can't see him today. He's not down here. But when he was down here, he lived out that life by doing... And to me, this is one of the things that's interesting that Peter tells us when Peter is sharing the gospel over in Acts 10, that Peter says he went about doing all kinds of good works, testified by God, testified to his nature and his character. 
And he did these kind of things. And Paul does something similar over in Acts 13. And so here Jesus himself is saying, I'm the light of the world while I'm here. And while he's doing these works that God did, oh, I don't have the, the, the map up there, but while he's doing these works in this part of the land, this country up there, now he did some of them in Jerusalem, but this prophecy of Isaiah had to do with these parts. And this is where the bulk of his ministry will take place. He will make several trips to Jerusalem. Do you know why he made several trips to Jerusalem? Well, number one, it's God's will. But number two, every Jewish man, every Jewish man had to travel to Jerusalem for feasts three times a year. That was required under the law. So if you're going to obey the law, you had to make that trip to Jerusalem three times a year for these feasts and keep these. And Jesus, as a Jew that was obeying the law, went down there. And so he did make trips down there. But the bulk of his ministry is going to be, he never, he never calms the Dead Sea. They don't go down to the Dead Sea, probably because there's no fishing to be had on the Dead Sea. They fish on the Sea of Galilee. That's where he was. And it's the events that are up there that the bulk of our Bibles uh, record for us. And so this is actually real simple and it's straightforward. Matthew tells us this was fulfilled. They were waiting to see this light. It was promised by Isaiah. And you saw it in the person of Jesus Christ walking the earth and ministering in those areas. Okay? Got it? That's pretty straightforward. Okay? Let's go to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. And there's a couple state there's a few statements here, a couple statements at least in Isaiah 53 that are quoted Peter quotes one of these which we're not looking at this morning. We're only looking at the one in Isaiah 53 and verse 4 and it's talking here about Je the the servant of Jehovah that comes out of the uh, uh, verse 13 of chapter 52 up above. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high, lifted up, and greatly exalted. But when that servant comes, verse 2, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. In other words, he, he's coming up in a, a place that's not particularly favorable. It's parched. Okay? It's parched, like around here. If you tried to plant good crops in our soil and you didn't put any water on it, it wouldn't do very well. It might look really impressive for a day or two in that ground, but it's not going to stay very well. But he did. It says in verse 3, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, and he was acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men <coughs> hide their face, he was despised, and, he, and we did not esteem him. We didn't hold him in any regard. Surely our griefs he himself has bore, and our sorrows... He has carried or lifted up, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. In other words, everything he went through, they said God was responsible for that. And yeah, men inflicted that, but we've looked at this before. They were accurate in the sense that God did strike him when he was on the cross. God was the one that smote him with our sins, not with his own sins, which is what they were thinking. So from here, let's go to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. In Matthew chapter 8, if you go down to, uh, let's go down to verse 14. We actually have a couple of events. We had one in the first part of this where um, we, had a, we had Jesus dealing with a leper that he heals from leprosy. Then we have 
uh, a, a centurion that is a Roman military leader uh, that uh, has one that needs to be healed in his family. And then verse 14, And when Jesus had come to Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and waited on him. And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. In order that, now, now this is Matthew's filling this in, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, he himself took our infirmities and carried away or lifted up our diseases. And so there was part of Jesus' earthly ministry was, which, was, which involved his healing people, physically healing them, physically dealing with the maladies that they experienced as part of life down here. And uh, we have that statement. So here, and the, to me, the interesting thing in the comparison in, in Isaiah 53 is, here he comes and he does this. He's the one that carries our problems. And yet when he goes through grief himself, we, we, we said, well, that's God doing that to him. God's doing that. They don't bear any responsibility. And yet the only reason God had to lay Israel's perversities and the world's sins on Christ was because they were sinners and they acted perversely out of their bent nature. And that's why. Yes, God is the one that put that on him when he hung on the cross. Uh, anyway, all that to say that when we're looking at this, we're talking about actual physical, genuine physical healing. So those two are pretty easy, but now we're going to come to one that uh, is going to be one of these that you wouldn't expect fulfillment of. So we're going to go back to, in, in Isaiah, go back, we're still in Isaiah, go to Isaiah chapter 7. We quote this one pretty much every Christmas. For some Christians, this is the only time that they talk about this. It's not the only time people talk about this. I actually was listening to... Uh, Pastor Lance from downtown taught, uh, speaking recently, and, and in one of his messages, he was talking about the virgin birth and the importance of the virgin birth with respect to who Jesus Christ was. So sometimes there, we do talk about it out of season. <laughs> out of season, isn't that funny? It's, there's a season for talking about it. <laughs> That's you, you understand what I'm talking about. The, the Christmas season is when people focus on this. Anyway, in Isaiah chapter 7, to kind of put this in perspective, what we're looking at, I want you to start up in verse 1. Follow along, because you, you, you need to read the context, I think, to appreciate what he's going to say. Now, it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram. Yeah, there he goes. We're waiting for him in the back. Aram. Okay, Aram. Some of your modern translations are going to translate that Syria, okay? So I've noticed that some of them will translate that because Syria was what they, they came to under, uh, refer to this place as. And Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. And when it was reported to the house of David, saying, the Arameans have camped in Ephraim. So someday when Aram gets married and has a bunch of kids and grandkids. They can call them the Arameans. Okay, anyway. Well, back to the main topic. I'm sorry, I got distracted. Uh, it says, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim. His heart and the hearts of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son Shir Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And say to him, Take care and be calm. Have no fear, and do not be faint-hearted, because of these two... Now, look at, 
He's looking at the Arameans in Israel, and how does he refer to them? They come to make war, but he says, they are two stubs of smoldering firebrands. In other words, you're getting alarmed, and they're not anything you should be worried about. They're little stubs, is the way he's referring to it. On account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, and the son of Ramaliah, because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Ramaliah has planned evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. In other words, their plans are going to, they're going to fall on their faces. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, that is being this king. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered. So that is no longer place. Ephraim is where Samaria is where the, the kingdom was up to the north, and it's going to be where Samaria is going to end up having its, its headquarters. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. And the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. And Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. And then he said, Listen now. O house of Israel, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will not try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, in other words, you're not going to ask for the sign. The Lord's going to give you one anyway. The Lord will give you a sign. Behold. Now, here's, here's the tricky part. <coughs> the Hebrew word Alma that's translated here, most of your Bibles back translate this word virgin from the New Testament. The word Parthenos in the New Testament is virgin, plain and simple. It's not another alternative. But in the Hebrew, Alma simply means young woman. It does not of its nature mean virgin. So when we have virgin here, that's taking something we have in the New Testament and bringing it back over here. So it says, behold then, in this context then, behold, a virgin or a young woman will be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey. By the way, Emmanuel, we apply this to Jesus, but did, did they go, did people go around and call Jesus Emmanuel? They called him Jesus. That was his name. That Jesus is, by the way, if, if you were to pronounce Jesus in Hebrew, what would you be saying? Joshua. Joshua Yeshua. Yeah. That's all it was. Jesus is just the, the Greek pronunciation of the name Joshua. It says, a virgin will be with child, or this young woman will be with child, bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at a time that he knows, when he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know to refuse evil and choose, choose good. I've got a grandson down there. He doesn't know how to choose between evil and good yet. Now my granddaughter, who's three and a half, she should know how to choose between good and evil. She kind of figures that out sometimes. Sometimes, if you're at that age, you don't. Do any of you ever have problems choosing between good and evil? Yeah, sure we do. Let's see, but you get the point. There is a point at which you kind of are able to discern between that ah, I shouldn't do that and that's okay. In fact, my granddaughter has the reputation on the playground of being the child that tells the other kids on the slide, "You you need to wait your turn. You need to stand." <laughs> right? She's the she's the. Uh, Patrol girl there sometimes. So she's determining between right and wrong. See, at three and a half, she kind of figures, hey, th this is not, you, you moved in the line. That's not right. See, kids get that. But he says, before this one is able to do that, 
the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. In other words, this is going to happen in a short space of time. Now here's the whole point. If you just read this, you would say, this is a prophecy. But it's a prophecy that King Ahaz should expect. In what time frame? In a very short time frame. Short enough that before that child, short enough that before that child can choose between good and evil, those nations are going to be forsaken and they're not going to be a problem for you anymore. And you would read that, and if you stop there and say, that's what it is, you know what? You'd be in good company. Because that is what that prophecy was really about. Okay, now let's go over to the book of Matthew. Let's go over to the book of Matthew, and let's turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, most of us all know this account, so I'm not going to develop this. I, most of us are less familiar with what's happening in Isaiah 7, which is why I read more of that. Most of us know the account of the annunciation of Jesus' birth with regard to Joseph in this context. And so in Matthew chapter 1, and it says in verse 20, But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, he tells, doesn't say call his name Emmanuel. He says call his name Jesus, which is interesting, because in their day, you normally called them a family name. And oftentimes, you would do it with reference to, to uh, close, closer to the father's family in that way. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Behold the virgin. Now he actually uses the word parthenos. Because now he's saying that there's something more precise in what was being stated over there. Shall be with child, shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. In other words, Jesus came. He was born, and Matthew is, or the angel is telling Joseph, this is, the angel is telling Joseph this. And Matthew's simply recording. Was Matthew present there? No. So how in the world does Matthew know this? Because he is not the one that sits down and goes, I want to write this, and I don't know what to put down. Hmm. I got to go through my tomes and pull out some, no. He is receiving divine revelation from the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what the Old Testament prophets said, and this is exactly what the New Testament writers tell us, that the Holy Spirit was telling them, this is what I want you to say. Let's put it this way. None of these people saw the original origins of Jesus, because none of these guys were present when he was there. John, of course, John doesn't really give us a birth narrative for the most part, but Luke gives us a birth narrative. He wasn't there. Luke, at best, was probably over in Asia Minor, way off to the west. He wasn't over in this country. Mark doesn't really give us much of a birth narrative, but as he references back to those things, Mark wasn't present, and Matthew wasn't present for this. Where did they get their information? From the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is telling them these things. It's the same way, how did, how did, how did Moses know what to write in the book of Genesis? He wasn't around for any of that. The events of Genesis had all ended 400 years before Moses was alive. 
It's called divine revelation. And if we believe that there really is a God in heaven, it should not surprise us that he reveals himself and tells us the things he says we need to know. Does he tell us everything that a person could know? No. Because do you need to know everything a person could know to know God's will? No. No. And so Matthew has this information about this, uh, this visit in which an angel came and speaks to Joseph and tells him this is about fulfilling what was spoken through the prophet. Now here's the question. How is that a fulfillment? I thought this was fulfilled back in the days of Ahaz. Well, it was. So some people come along and they've developed what they call dual fulfillment. This has a dual fulfillment. That is, this was expected, this fulfilled it, and this fulfilled it. And there's a sense in which we might kind of say that that's true, but I think maybe better than saying dual fulfillment is understanding that our word fulfill sometimes means to fill it full so that it is now complete. And what God did in sending this son in the days of King Ahaz completed this only to a point. But what happens when he sends God the son down here and the son is born through Mary, that fully completes this prophecy of what God intended back over there in Isaiah. So I would not say it's a dual fulfillment. I would just say that that prophecy wasn't done. He wasn't finished with it yet. He had more to do with regard to that particular prophecy. That's what brought it to its completion. That's what brought it to its completion. That's what filled it full. Up to that point, it still was lacking something. You wouldn't know that, however, because Isaiah's prophecy doesn't look like a prophecy that needed anything else, does it? When you get done reading it, if you didn't know the New Testament, you'd read that and go, oh, well, that was done. But God in his plans, like, it's not done yet. It's not done. Some of this is done, but it's not all done. Some of it's going to come about. In a similar way, let's look at another one of these. Let's go to, I, um, this should not be Isaiah chapter 7. I've, I've got this wrong. It should be Hosea chapter 11. For some reason, I didn't change my verse here. Hosea chapter 11. Hosea is right after Daniel, for those of you that haven't visited Hosea for a while. Hosea chapter 11. It says in verse 1 of Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. There are more, there's more than one time that God refers to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament as his son. But when you read that, does that look like it's even a prophecy? This just looks like an historical narrative. He's just historically, he's just stating, hey, out of Egypt I called my son, which he did. He, he heard the cry of the sons of Israel down there in Egypt, he sends Moses to be the one to lead them out. Moses does, does lead them out because God called them out of Egypt to bring them back to this land that he had promised them. And remember when he promised it to them through their father Abraham, he told them, I'm promising it to you, but it's going to be a long time because you're going to go someplace else. You're going to stay someplace else. You're going to be oppressed someplace else. And it's going to be over 400 years before all of that is finished. 400 years is going to be part of the oppression time in that. 
I was just reading on the oppression yesterday uh, over in the early chapters of the book of Exodus, actually chapter 1. But if we go over to the book of Matthew in chapter 2, so go back or flip back over to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, and when you get there, let's go down to verse 13. We have no idea exactly the time frame when all of this happens. What we know is that when these wise men, as we call them, as these men with their entourage and everything come from the east, they arrive. Jesus is no longer in the, he's no longer in a, uh, a stable. We presume a stable. He's no longer being uh, bedded down in a uh, um, feed bunk for animals. They're in a house. And the terminology used for him is a little bit of an older child. Still a, still a very young child, but, but a little bit older. And some people have guessed because Herod sends him out to kill all the boys two years and, and younger that they're saying maybe the possibility he might have been as old as maybe two. All of this is just a guess because God doesn't give us any precise framing of the dates. But if you don't know this story, because Herod wants to kill them, God in a dream or an angel in a dream comes in verse 13 and tells, appears to Joseph and says, Arise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. That was a prophecy? Out of Egypt I called my son? That doesn't look like a prophecy over there. It doesn't look anything like a prophecy. It looks like a simple historical statement. That's because it is, from God's point of view, something that he needs to complete. The book of Matthew presents Jesus Christ chiefly as Israel's king. Presenting to Israel the kingdom that God had planned for them the kingdom that most of the nation was not expecting. That's why Jesus was going around telling them to repent. He says, repent for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. Most of them are going, the kingdom of heaven is not at hand. It's gone. It ain't coming. We're not looking for it. And Jesus says, no, you need to change your mind. The kingdom is here. It's so near that the king is right here. And before him, John the Baptist was telling them the same thing because he's basically telling them, the king's right on my heels. He's coming behind me. Just a little ways. And so as he is presenting this as the king, he is identified, he identifies himself throughout this book and at different stages with the nation Israel. And one of the things that's interesting is, is kind of here at the very, towards this outset of our getting to meet him, he identifies with Israel in the sense that he goes through some of the same experience they went through, and that is he ends up going as a child down into Egypt and coming out of Egypt. Now, when he came out of Egypt, what ended up happening before they ever got to go into the land? What's that next thing? I'm just going to throw another little detail in here. What's the next big event that happens in there before they ever get to the land? It's a long time. What? The wilderness. The wilderness. How long does that go? 40 years. Now, Jesus doesn't do 40 years because his ministry is, he's going to be gone. He's going to have died and been risen before that. But what does he go through 
after this event, it's going to be some time after this event, but before, before he actually begins officially his ministry, he's going to go through 40 years of, of testing. Days. days. I said 40 years again. 40 days, thank you. 40 days of that testing, of that temptation in which God is going to prove him. Jim was touching on a little bit of that just as he's going through. He didn't get to that part, but he read, we read through it in 1 Timothy chapter uh, 3.16. That he was, I always think it's funny, the English Bible, vindicated by the Spirit. What does vindicated mean? It's word, he's declared righteous, simply is what it is, the Greek word, declared righteous. How is he declared righteous? He went through temptation for 40 days and he was righteous. And we have three of those temptations recorded for us, but it says that that went on for the whole 40 days. We're only getting a little sample when we see those three. And he's demonstrating, God is demonstrating, the Spirit is demonstrating Jesus Christ to be righteous. And he's so, when Israel is out there in the wilderness for 40 years, in 40 years, do they succeed or do they fail? They failed in 40 years. Jesus, on the other hand, succeeds in this regard. So this, it's kind of some interesting parallels in this. But again, we would not have looked at that statement in, in Hosea and we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't have expected that to be a prophecy. I don't know how many... Um, ben Orth went through this, I don't know how many years ago. He went through that series of, of uh, prophecies from the Old Testament fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Do you remember sitting in that class downstairs? And he took a long time and he went through a slew of prophecies. But this was one of them. And he went through some of these prophecies that you would never think that they were prophecies. But they were statements, historical statements, that are completed then with the person of Jesus Christ coming on the scene and going through something related to that event, but at a different time. So this is a good, this is a good lesson here when we look at these two last ones, Isaiah 7 and Hosea 11, to demonstrate that just because we read the word fulfill doesn't necessarily mean it's in the mindset of how we always think fulfillment should be. There are straightforward fulfillments where God prophesied this. He said, this is going to happen. We're waiting for it. It hasn't happened. It hasn't happened. It hasn't happened. And all of a sudden, boom, there it is. But we're going to have some other statements that are going to be made that we're just going to look at as historical facts. They're just We're reading it, Hosea 11. The woman had a child before that child was even old enough to tell the difference between right and wrong. Boom, those nations are gone, just like, just like God prophesied. We wouldn't expect anything more. But he says, no. He says, this is also going to extend out here to this person, Jesus Christ. And it's the New Testament that actually tells us this is, there was more to it than what you just witnessed back there. So fulfillment sometimes is pretty straightforward and sometimes it's going to be extended. This is where you and I have to be very careful because if we think we can read our, our, our Bibles just exactly like these guys do, we need to remember... We don't have the ministry of the Spirit doing in us exactly what he did in these people. Now, we're going to look at two last passages of Scripture that use the word fulfill, and we're not fulfilling anything as far as we would know. We're going to go over to the book of Romans in chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Now, in Romans 13... He is encouraging these people in verse 1, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. So he basically tells them, be in submission with them. Don't fight against these people. Do what they tell you to do. That's why I always say, 
if you're gonna, if you are going to, as a Christian, stand and say the government tells me I can't be a Christian because fill in the blank, you better have a real chapter and verse that tells you that that's the way it's supposed to be. Okay. And I hope I'm not stepping on anybody's toes, toes by saying this, but uh, back when I was growing up in Iowa. I think I've told some of you this story before that there were some men that actually ended up going to jail, doing some jail time because they determined that God did not want their kids in public school. And so they decided to set up this own their own way of schooling these kids at home at that time. And in the process of what they were doing, they got themselves in trouble with the state because the state had mandated requirements for how they were to teach their kids. And these people went to the Old Testament law where it said that you were supposed to train these children up. What were they training them up in? How to read and to write and how to do their math? No, it was to train them in the law. And they misused some Old Testament scriptures to stand as their foundation for why they should educate their children the way they were teaching them. I'm glad that you have the freedom and the option to educate your children as you choose. I'm glad we have that option. Just make sure you have, according to Scripture, if you're going to state, if you're ever going to really challenge something, and that normally is not a big challenge for most people today, uh, that you're actually going to the right Scriptures. So he says, you submit to the government, because unless the Bible actually tells you this is the way you're supposed to function, you should really find a chapter. You really should follow what the government says in these matters. And so in this, then, he makes a statement. Romans 13, look down at verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And this is because he said in verse 7, pay your taxes. Every one of you loves to write out that check, right? You all love writing out that check to the government going, here's my taxes. You put a big heart down there on the memo thing. Kiss, kiss. No, we don't do that. We don't do that. Well, maybe you do. I don't know anybody that does because it's not a thing. But he says you can do that. He says you can do those things for this. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there's any other kind of commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What he's saying is love for others can be the right motive of obeying the law. You don't have to obey the law to be a legalist. You don't have to be a legalist in obeying it. You can just obey, and he's not even talking about the Mosaic Law, and that he's using the Mosaic Law as an illustration of obeying the civil law. Now with that, I want you to go back to verse 8. Verse 8 says, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. And that word one another there is those that are like you. Alleluus. Other believers, this is the statement right out of the new command in John 13, 34, where he says, love one another as I have loved you. We tell you this again and again. It's the love that you have for your family that actually says something to the world out there. We always think we go out and have to actively love the world for them to see this, but that is not what Jesus said. That's human reasoning. It says they can't see love until I go out and love them. And Jesus goes, no, that is not the way it's going to work. They're going to be looking in through the windows, seeing the love that you have among yourselves as the family. And they're going to go, ha, huh, I want to know those people. I want to know what that's about. I want to know why that happens. 
So he says, keep on now, verse 8. He says to love one another. For the one loving, and now your Bibles, at least the New American Standard that I have here, says loves his neighbor. There's no word neighbor here. And not in any Greek text. That is a pure interpretation of the next word, which is an adjective that is modifying the word law in the Greek. And literally, is, he has fulfilled the different law. It's heteros. And in the Greek, it's ton, that's the article, the, heteron, different, and namon, law. And the reason I tell you that is because that's the way you put an adjective with the noun that it modifies. You put it between its article and the noun itself. Now, there's some people that are trying to say, well, heteros, he, he means a different person. It's not what it says. It's the, he's fulfilling the different law. That's what he's talking about here. In other words, you set out to fulfill the command that Christ left us to love one another, and that fulfills that other law. What's the different law? Not Christ's law, not even the Old Testament law. Well, excuse me, that's, that's not what I meant to say. It could be the Old Testament law in the proper context. But here it's the law of Rome. That's what he was referring to. And for us, it would be the law of the United States of America. You fulfill that because you're driven by the love that you have for other people. So as a believer, because you love other believers, you're going to be in submission to the government around you. If I made a habit of being a guy that just constantly flaunted the laws that are here in Royal City, and everybody knew, that guy, I'm telling you, when the police officer is not here, he tears up Aller's Road like it is a superhighway. You got to see the way that guy drives. Never got caught, because he always makes sure that Ray's someplace else in town, or the other officers are someplace else. And he tears around like that. And you know, I'm not all that sure. He's friends with Josh and Ben, but I'm not all that sure that I'm positive I've watched him pocket a few things when he's been down at the store. And you can go on and on. You could, you could have this reputation. He says, you don't do that. If you love other believers, you don't want to develop a reputation as a, as a rebel against the system. And yet I still think this is one of the things as Christians, it's kind of sad testimony. Is that the way we, we become? We rage and, re and rebel so much against the system and rage and shake our fists at it all the time that that's what we're known for. We're not known for loving each other. And yet Christ said, that's a thing that we should be known for. Not that we're fighting and arguing and, and taking every opportunity to, to uh, uh, what's, I just was using the word, break the law, trying to get away with breaking the law. That doesn't apply to me now. Well, it does, but no one's going to catch me, so I'll get away with it. And this word fulfill, here it is. You fulfilled this thing. You're actually doing those things. You're completing. This has a different sense, but I'm doing this because here he's looking, he's using references from the Old Testament, and I want to, I just want you to see this next one real quick, Galatians chapter 5. He's going to say the same thing, but the reason I'm coming to Galatians 5 is because now he's going to talk about the law of Moses specifically, because that's the question. The question in Romans 13 is chiefly about the law of Rome. In Galatians chapter 15, in verse 14, he says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, Love your neighbor as yourself. And he doesn't go through all those other examples. And then he says, but this comes from verse 13 where he says, you were called to freedom, but your freedom, you don't use it as an opportunity for your flesh. You use it to serve one another. 
He says, that's what you use that. That's what you use your freedom for, to serve. It's not here for you to get away with doing things you shouldn't do. So guess what? If you love your brothers, and if those brothers were Jewish, generally you're not going to be out there going, well, I'm not under law, so I can kill. I can commit adultery. I can bear false witness. Because I'm not under the law anymore. No, love wouldn't do that. Would love do that kind of stuff? But are, is this person trying to... Is this person trying to keep the law? No, they're not trying to keep the law. What they're doing is they're focusing on loving others. And if you really love others, you're not going to do those things that are harmful to those other people. And you don't need a list of thou shalt nots. You just know, I just don't do that. Would I want people to treat me like that? No, I'm going to love them like Christ loved. I'm going to be a servant to them. Both these passages use the word fulfill. And he's not telling us that we are the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. But this is a good place to demonstrate that there is a different sense sometimes in this idea of fulfill, that we are actually bringing to a point of completion some other things without actually, in this context, setting out to do so. My goal isn't to keep the Roman law or the law of the United States, and my goal is not to keep the, the law of Moses. My goal is to love other believers. <laughs> And I'm so focused on doing what's best for you that when anything seems to arise that might interfere with that or make problems for you, I'm going to back off and say, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. Because they are more important than, my getting, than I getting my way or getting what my flesh wants or something of that nature. Fulfillment of Scripture, first and foremost, is for you to understand that whether we understand it in the Typical way we understand fulfillment as kind of the straightforward statements that we looked at out of Isaiah with, with Zebulun, and Naphtali, uh, Zebulun and Naphtali, statements like that, or those statements that look like they're not even prophecies, they're just completed one way or another. It's really ultimately the idea of God completing or filling up something. So there's nothing left. There's nothing left. Even if you and I didn't perceive that there was anything left. There isn't when it's done. Father, we're thankful for the time you've given us together. We're thankful for the time over the last few months here just to be reminded that we should take your word seriously. We need to spend time reading it. We need to, to get to know your word because as we get to know it, we have the potential to know you. We only can really know you as we live it out, but we can't really get to know you living it out if we don't know what to expect, if we don't know what to identify and so we're thankful for your word, for in it you have actually expressed to us your will, your will for our people at other times, but also your will for us today. And uh, we're thankful for that privilege of doing these things. We're thankful then for how it tells us to use even those portions of the word of God that they have value, that are not specifically written to us, not specifically directed uh, for our lives, our lifestyle. And we're thankful for that also. Thankful for the kindness of these people and their attention. We ask whatever you might have for us in the remainder of this day that we might be an encouragement to one another and we thank you for it. Amen.